me pray for us and then we'll get started. Oh, gracious Father, we all are like sheep that have gone astray, assuming that we don't need the care of, good, of a good shepherd. But God, we thank you that by your loving kindness and mercy, for those of us that are in Christ, you have opened our eyes to see our need of your shepherding care. And so now, God, as we submit ourselves to your word, we pray that you would feed us with that good nutrition of the green pastures of your word that you intend to encourage us, to comfort us, to correct us, to challenge us, and ultimately to help us to feed on your son, Jesus Christ, the only one who nourishes us with eternal life. So God, this evening we pray that you would remove any distractions that would keep us from seeing Jesus. And God, by the power of your spirit, would you enable us to listen with the joy and gratitude to your word, which reminds us that you have given us a good shepherd who cares for his sheep. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. For those of you unfamiliar with Old Testament context, Abigail was reading for us from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet during the time of Israel when they were in exile. This nation of Israel had disobeyed the Lord. They had given themselves over to their sin and in such a way that even their leaders were, as you just read about there, they were feeding themselves rather than feeding God's chosen people. So God sends Ezekiel to bring a word of condemnation against these bad shepherds who are not caring for God's people. If you've read any of the Old Testament, you can see the downward spiral of Israel's progression into sinfulness and rejection against God. The whole Old Testament has been feeling the tension of no true shepherd that has risen up to actually feed God's sheep and to provide for them, to care for them. Which is why Ezekiel prophesies later, as Abigail read, and says, if no one is going to be able to do this, I will provide for myself the shepherd for my people. Keep this in mind as we look now to John's gospel. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 9. It's been two weeks now since Cole taught from John chapter 9 and the story of the man born blind. So I just want to point our attention to a few places in chapter 9 before we get to chapter 10. If you uh, haven't already opened your Bible, this is your opportunity to open your Bible to John chapter 9. I'm going to point your attention to several different places, and then I'm going to do the same thing in John chapter 10. So you should see a Bible around you. Um, Go ahead, grab that, open up to John chapter 9. Look down with me now at verse 16. So in this section of John chapter 9, we see a miracle where Jesus is healing this man who was born blind. Cole did a phenomenal job explaining what's happening here. And in verse 16, we see that these Pharisees are going to say that this man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. These Pharisees are the religious leaders of all of Israel. So if you think back to Ezekiel, 
The prophet Ezekiel is bringing a condemnation upon Israel's leaders, these bad shepherds. Here we see that the Pharisees, those who claim to be teachers of Israel, those who were in a sense the gatekeepers to whoever belonged to the Jewish community, are here accusing Jesus. They are saying that this man is not from God. Look at verses 28 and 29. They revile this blind man saying, you are his disciple, speaking of Jesus, but we, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Not only do they revile the man who was healed, but they shamelessly identify themselves with Moses rather than with God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who performed this miracle in their very midst. Look at verse 34. They say to this man who was healed blind, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. In other words, these leaders are bad shepherds who do not care for the sheep of God and rejoice in his work of provision and protection. They reject God's sign to them in healing the blind man, and instead they remain blind themselves, and they cast this blind man from their own community. In John 9, John is going to showcase the Pharisees, the self-proclaimed shepherds of Israel, as those who have not strengthened the weak, those who have failed to heal the sick, those who do not seek out the lost, and those who have only ruled with force and harshfulness. They devour the very sheep that are supposed to be entrusted to them, like the poor blind man. I hope you can see these parallels between John chapter 9 and Ezekiel 34. Well, if these people are the rulers of Israel, how then will God's people escape this cycle of bad shepherds? When will God's good shepherd arrive to lead his people, to care for his people, to feed his people, to rescue them, to seek out the lost, to bring back the strayed, to bind up the injured, to provide salvation by laying his own life down? Let's see if we can find that answer in John chapter 10. Read with me beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger will not follow but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. <clears throat> I came that they may have life 
and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I hope that as I (coughs) read that, you sense the weight and the wonder of these claims that Jesus is making about himself. The rising tension of Israel's history, as we've seen, is that they have been promised protection and provision and growth as the people of God under the care of God, but their circumstances don't align with those promises. Because of their own sin and the sin of their leaders, they have been struck down, scattered in exile under Roman occupation, and they've been left on their own in their sin. They're like vulnerable sheep out in a pasture, off by themselves, vulnerable to wolves that are going to come in and eat them. This tension reaches its climax when Jesus appears on earth and claims to be the fulfillment of God's promise to to be that shepherd king who fully, finally, and faithfully delivers his people from their sin and despair. What I think John wants us to see most from this passage, what he records of Jesus' words is that Jesus is God's rescuer who has been sent to earth to shepherd God's people. Jesus is God's rescuer who is sent to earth to shepherd God's people, to provide for them, to protect them, to lead them into green pastures. For us tonight, this shepherd that we're speaking of is your shepherd. If you have confessed your sins, made repentance towards God, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything that you hear about this shepherd tonight is for you. In these first six verses of the chapter, Jesus is introducing us to the figure of speech that he's going to unpack. Some of you may be familiar with Jesus's parables, where he uses a story to illustrate a certain point. This figure of speech in the first six verses functions very similarly. Jesus is setting up the metaphors of the door and of the shepherd and of the sheep who hear his voice. You'll notice verse 6 shows that the blindness of the Pharisees is indeed true, as we saw in chapter 9, verse 40. It also connects, verse 6 also connects John 9 and John 10 as one teaching discourse. In other words, in order to fully understand what's happening in John chapter 9, we have to know what was happening in John chapter 9. So these two passages go hand in hand. We recognize because of verse 40 and verse 6 that this is likely the same teaching. uh, Jesus is just continuing on in his teaching. So this is the same group of people that are listening to him talk. 
right as he's come out of this object lesson and the healing of the blind man, he's going to continue to give them an indictment that they are blind and thus false shepherds of God's people. And he's instead going to show them what the true good shepherd of God's people is supposed to look like. Then in verses 7 and following, Jesus is going to explain those metaphors that he introduced to us. So in verse 7, he says that he is the door of the sheep. This probably connects all the way back to chapter 1 when Jesus had told his disciples in John chapter 1 verse 51 that they would see heaven opened up to them and that Jesus would be the, the means or the gate by which they would access heaven. So this door and this imagery of the gate shows the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to salvation. The thieves and robbers, robbers here refer to the Pharisees and other rulers of Israel whose rules and regulations suppress the people of God rather than provide for their spiritual flourishing. We see this clearly illustrated with how the Pharisees treat the man who was born blind in chapter 9 as we talked about. By contrast, Jesus came, verse 10, that they, like the blind man, could have life and have it abundantly. Next, we see in verses 11 to 13 that Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep far better than the hired hand. Again, Jesus is showing us his dying commitment to shepherd God's people. He will never leave them nor forsake them, unlike the hired hand who flees at any sign of trouble. Then in verses 14 through 18, Jesus expands on this explanation of his shepherding nature, which deals with his knowledge of the flock of God in his intimate relationship with them. He goes so far as to say that he is even willing to lay down his life for this flock. Finally, verses 19 through 21 round up the first half of John chapter 10 by showing that there are many Jews who are still blinded and fail to receive the truth about who Jesus is. This is saddening and sobering. As we sit here in our seats, we should just be baffled that these people who have experienced the grace of God as demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ still reject him. They have witnessed a man who has been blind from birth receive his sight, and yet their hearts are still hardened. Remember John 20 says that all these things are written, these signs are written so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life. Unfortunately, these Jews are hardened by their sin. They're deceived into thinking that they can be perfected by the law of Moses, not realizing that the very fulfillment of the law of Moses, the Lord Jesus, is standing in their midst. But by God's grace, there are others whose eyes are opened and who are receptive to the truth, as you see there in verse 21. They see, can these be the words of one who is oppressed by a demon? Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now to round out our time walking through the text, I'm going to read for us these final 20 verses and explain them as we go along. And after this, I'm going to spend the rest of our time reflecting and meditating on Christ our shepherd, which I pray will be of much encouragement to you. So what we're doing tonight is just trying to familiarize ourselves with what's happening here in the passage, and then I'm going to close our time by spending uh, the majority of it, hopefully, in meditating on Christ, our shepherd. Let's pick up in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. 
this here, just as a quick side comment, uh, indicates to us that this is now, because it's the Feast of Dedication, we've now jumped forward a few months in the timeline. So where chapters 9 and the first part of chapter 10 are one discourse, all happening in the same time frame, we've now jumped forward a little bit. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here we see that the Jews, a term that encapsulates the Pharisees and other Jews who were witnesses to Jesus' ministry, are still blind. They want Jesus to speak plainly with them, but he already has. Jesus wants them to know that his sheep hear his voice. I think for some of us, to Logan's point on friendship evangelism, sometimes assume that we have to argue non-believers into believing the gospel, as if it's up to our willpower to convince them that the words of Jesus are true. What John chapter 10 indicates to us is that these very people could see a man who was born blind healed of his blindness, and they're still not going to believe. Your non-believing friends could see God speak from heaven in an audible voice, and yet if they've given themselves over to the hardened heart of their sin, they're not going to believe. What your responsibility is, is to speak boldly and faithfully the words of this scripture in confidence, knowing that if they are sheep that belong to God, they will hear his voice. It's not up to you to convince them. Continue to be faithful, to share that word, and trust that the sheep will, even if they stray at first, eventually hear God's voice. Pick up verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not a f- for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Ah, Now it's become abundantly clear to us that the Jews know exactly what claims Jesus is making about himself. What claim is Jesus making about himself? That he is God. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another teacher. But Jesus is God. When Ezekiel prophesied, And God, through Ezekiel, spoke and said, I will provide a shepherd for my people. He was saying, I am coming down from heaven as the Lord Jesus Christ to take on flesh, to be God in the flesh, to shepherd you. 
So now it's clear to the Jews. It's no longer mistaken. They know exactly the claims that Jesus is making about himself. In their response, they pick up stones to kill him. They can't handle the truth. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. In summary, this section illustrates growing opposition to the Lord Jesus' ministry because of the claims that he has made about himself. Look back down at your Bibles. Notice verse 19. It says, again, there was division. Verse 31, the Jews pick up stones again to stone him. Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him. John wants us to see that the tension is rising. It's building more and more and more. And it seems like this is only going one place that Jesus is going to be arrested and that they're going to try him for blasphemy. In rejecting Jesus, these Jews prove that despite their lineage from Abraham, despite their scrupulous observance of the law, they are not among God's sheep. And this is not just true of these Jews. It's true of any who try to gain access to God by any means other than than through Jesus, the only true and good shepherd. Your church attendance will not save you. Your good works will not save you. As hard as it is to believe, Parker, your good looks will not save you. It is Christ alone who will save us. Now remember, I said that I think the primary thing that John wants us to see from this chapter in his gospel is that Jesus is God's rescuer who is sent to earth to shepherd his people. In Jesus Christ, the true shepherd, we have one who provides for his people, who protects his people, and who leads them to green pastures to be fed. So I want to finish our time together by considering four meditations on what it means for Jesus to be our good shepherd. It's on the second page of your handout there. First, we're going to see that Jesus is the good shepherd who comes that we may have life and have it abundantly. You can see that there in John chapter 10, verse 10. It's popular today to see Jesus as just a good moral example or as a teacher with wise sayings. But this text makes clear that Jesus came 
for one distinct purpose, and that is to be the giver of life. If you only look to Jesus as your moral teacher, you've missed the point. Jesus didn't come primarily to teach us about ethics, which is why you shouldn't trust those who use the name of Jesus to promote any of their social causes which are divorced from Christ's death and resurrection. By all means, we should love the outsider like Jesus has loved the outsider, but we must never ridicule other Christians for carefully upholding the clear teaching of Scripture on gender and sexuality, for instance, in the name of love. Jesus came primarily to give us life through his death and his resurrection. He came to give us life so that through confession of sins and repentance towards God, you can be his. And in Jesus, you not only have life, but you have it abundantly. One application of that is to just smile more. If you're maybe a sad boy like me at times, you're not as prone to smile as frequently. But when I sit and reflect on the fact that Jesus came, not just that I can have life, but that I can have life abundantly, it makes me smile. So maybe one application for you tonight is to reflect on that, to wake up tomorrow morning, to remember that Jesus has come as the good shepherd to give you life and give it abundantly, and to smile with gratitude. This also means that in Christ, you lack nothing that you need. Are you feeling like your GPA isn't as high as you want it to be? You lack nothing. Are you feeling the sting of singleness? You lack nothing. If you're Casey, are you feeling sad because you get bullied around the office too much? You lack nothing. This doesn't mean that the pain that we feel in life is irrelevant or that we shouldn't feel it. It simply means that when you think that you lack something, you must pause and preach to yourself that because you have Christ, you have everything that you need. You can possess all of the world, but if you lack Christ, you have nothing. Or like the widow's might, you can have nothing, but because you possess Christ, you have everything. The great Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said that the most common ill that we face is that we listen to ourselves more than we preach to ourselves. One thing that we need to remember is that because we have life in Christ abundantly, when we feel that we lack something, we're essentially saying to the Lord Jesus, I know that you've promised life abundantly, but I need life abundantly and this thing. In that moment, you need to not listen to yourself but to preach to yourself that because you have Christ, you have all that you need. Second, Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his own sheep and who doesn't flee when danger threatens them. Do you truly believe that if you belong to God as a Christian because of your faith in Jesus that he knows you? I'm talking to you. If you belong to God because of your faith 
in him through the Lord Jesus, do you truly believe that he knows you? He knows you, Sandy. He knows you, Ian. He knows you, Gabe. There is nowhere that you can go outside of God's all-seeing eye. And not does he just notice you. He cares for you with tender compassion. Like a groom who sees his bride coming down the aisle. Like a father who holds his baby for the first time. Practically, here's what it means that Jesus knows his sheep. First, whatever circumstance you find yourself in is is exactly where God has placed you according to his infinite wisdom in his kind providence towards you. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in is exactly where God has placed you. He's put you there according to his infinite wisdom and his kind providence. He sees you. He knows where you are because he's placed you there. For some, you might be grateful because you're living through good times. You can indeed declare these green pastures, oh man, they taste so good. For others of you, you might feel like you are in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. You're thinking to yourself, it's actually so dark in this valley that there's no way that Jesus actually sees me. I know that you say that he does, but if you were at my vantage point, you would empathize and recognize that there's no way that Jesus actually sees me. Maybe it's depression Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's rejection by a parent or a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's shame associated with past sin. Maybe it's the plague of doubt or lack of assurance that weakens your soul into spiritual depression. Maybe you just don't see the usefulness of college or of your job and you don't know why you should endure Whatever it may be, you must trust that Jesus sees you and has you exactly where you need to be. He will not lead you into danger. If you feel like you're in that valley, not only is he there in the valley with you, but perhaps you shall see things from the valley which you could never see from the hilltop. I know that many of you, including myself, are still too young to know deep suffering in life. But if you talk to anyone who has, you will hear them recount the many ways in which their faith was strengthened and their love for God was deepened through those times in the valley. A prayer that you can pray is that God would help you to conceive of your circumstances not as something intended for your pleasure in life, but as intended for your growth in godliness. Pray that God would help you. We need help in this. Pray that God would help you to conceive of your circumstances, whatever circumstances you inhabit, 
not as things that are intended for your pleasure, but as things that are intended for your growth in godliness. Things that are intended to cause you to depend upon God more. That way, when you look around and you see the darkness and the supposed danger of the valley, you can trust that the Lord Jesus is walking there with you and he has also placed you there so that you can see things that will cause you to grow. And in fact, those of you in the valley are likely to experience more growth and godliness and have a sweeter, more dependent relationship upon God than those who never experience any sort of trial or temptation. Jesus knowing his sheep also means that you cannot hide your sin. God sees it. He knows which sheep are straying in pride from the fold of God. He knows which sheep are biting him when he reaches down to care for them. Never assume that even those secret sins or those sins that just remain up here, the hateful or ungracious or envious or slanderous thoughts that you keep up here that no one else sees, God sees them and they are not hidden from his sight. But not only does Jesus know his sheep, he also protects them when they're endangered. When you shelter yourself under Jesus' care as your good shepherd, you will be protected from harm against all enemies. The saying is true that Satan prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. And he's crafty. He employs so many different means to do this. He uses comparison. He uses lust. He uses greed and envy. He uses anger. He uses social media. He uses so many tools to endanger you and to impede your progress toward heaven. But when you feed on Christ by gathering with the local church on Sunday mornings, by reading his word, by meditating on his benefits towards you, you will be sheltered from these temptations. When you feed on the good nutrients that God provides through the Lord Jesus in the gathering of the church, in his word, in prayer, in Christian fellowship, you put on armor that shields you from Satan's devices. You find a friend who comes underneath you and helps you in the valley as you journey toward heaven. And think about this, not only are the sheep of God threatened by false shepherds like the Pharisees, fundamentally these shepherds are threatened by eternal death and destruction when they experience God's eternal wrath against them for their sins. Any, any enemy that you can think of in this life, the worst enemy you could possibly think of, the worst threat of suffering or circumstance that you can conceive of in your mind pales in comparison to the consequence that your sin has incurred against you, which is the very wrath of God. Because God has to, in order to preserve his justice, punish your sin because of his holy character. So not only do you face dangers without, the danger within of your sin is even worse. A wolf attacking the herd is unbelievably minor compared 
with the dark storm cloud of God's just wrath against sin. And so here's what this means. When it says that the Lord Jesus, as the good shepherd, will protect you from danger, he not only protects you from those dangers without. He looks into the eye of the storm of God's wrath. And rather than fleeing like the hired hand, he makes sure the sheep are behind him. And he goes straight into the eye of that storm. As courageous and heroic as it is for a firefighter to run into a burning home to save a child, it's nothing like Jesus willingly going to the cross to face God's full cup of wrath against sin in his death. Know that if you are a believer, this is what Jesus has done for you. And if you're not a believer, know that that storm of God's wrath is coming for you. And unless you take shelter behind a loving, tender shepherd who goes into the storm for you, you're going to have to wade into that storm by yourself. And it's not going to turn out good for you. This leads us to that third point. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We see this all over our passage in verse 11, 15, 17, 18. This third point is the most important one and is the key to understanding the riddle of the Old Testament. The riddle of the Old Testament is that God has promised to provide a shepherd to care for his people, to lead them to salvation. And so when Jesus claims this title of the shepherd, he receives a mixed reception. Some believe and rejoice, but others harden their hearts. But one thing that neither of these groups expect, the group that receives him and the group that rejects him, one thing that neither of these groups expects is just how Jesus intends to shepherd his people. In a divine act of irony, Jesus, the good shepherd, becomes the lamb. He becomes a lamb who is slain for the sins of his people. He's not just a shepherd who rules and reigns over them, but like a sacrificial servant, he becomes like them. And he goes to that cross to have his blood spilt, to pay the penalty that our sins had incurred so that God would accept his sacrifice, raise him from the dead, and that anyone who believes and accepts that as the only way of salvation can be saved. Praise God for Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And notice, he does this of his own accord. Notice that Jesus is at pains to demonstrate that no one forces him to give his life up. That's John 10, verse 18. Jesus dies of his own voluntary free will because he knew that his death would be the only way to make full and final atonement for man's sins. This is a doctrine we call penal substitutionary atonement. If you want to think more about that, write it down, look it up, or talk with me afterward. But there's so much richness to meditate on in the fact that Jesus willingly gives of his life. 
And it's not just to demonstrate his servanthood, which is true. It's because Jesus consciously knows that the only way by which God's people can be saved is if he, as the perfect son of God, who has taken on flesh, goes to a cross himself and bears all of humanity's sins upon himself. If he wasn't perfect, it wouldn't satisfy God's requirements. If he wasn't the son of God, it wouldn't satisfy God's requirements. It had to be Jesus, God the son incarnate in the flesh to save us from our sins. Fourth and finally, Jesus is the good shepherd who gives eternal life and promises to keep his sheep unto eternity. That's John chapter 10, verse 28. If you belong to God by faith and repentance, you have the assurance of eternal life and that nothing will snatch you out of his hands. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus, the Son of God, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, the same one we've been talking about, the shepherd of God's people, the shepherd who walks with you through the valley, is the same shepherd who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about that for just a second. The earth at this moment with us on it is traveling at 67,000 miles per hour around the sun. 67,000 miles per hour around the sun right now. The Milky Way galaxy, our one galaxy among the 100 billion galaxies that we know of is traveling at 1.3 million miles per hour around the universe. According to Hebrews, the same Lord Jesus who upholds those things by the word of his power and of which these things would stop and you would go flying millions of miles per hour in that direction. is the same hand who promises to hold you. The same hand that promises to keep you, to never allow anyone or anything to snatch you out of it if you are truly one of his sheep. When you fear that your faith will fail, Christ will hold you fast. When the tempter seems to prevail, Christ will hold you fast. When all hope seems lost, your great shepherd, the Lord Jesus, will keep you in the palm of his hand unto eternity. If you are in Christ and you hear my words, this is your good shepherd. This is the one who is for you. This is the one who cares for you. This is the one who came to save you. One of my goals in life is to become such a good home chef that when I have people over to my home and I cook and prepare a meal for them and I share it with them, that later in the week they're craving that same meal again. That's my goal in life. It's a little bit vain, I'll admit, but it's a goal nonetheless. Tonight, I've been praying that you have gained a craving to explore the bottomless depths of God's care to you as you meditate him, meditate on him as your good shepherd. Don't let tonight be the only time that you think about this. 
One practical way to get you started, tomorrow morning, whenever your alarm is set, at some point before then, set your alarm clock back five minutes earlier. And with those five minutes, open up to the 23rd Psalm and spend time reading, praying, reflecting, and taking joy that the shepherd that is described in Psalm 23 is the Lord Jesus, which is yours by faith. And one final plea to any who are listening but who don't know whether they are one of God's sheep or not. Look back at John chapter 10, verse 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the only way to salvation. In the words of J.C. Ryle, let us take heed that we use this door and do not merely stand outside looking at it. It is a door free and open to the chief of sinners. If any man enter in by it, he shall be saved. It is a door within which we shall find a full and constant supply for every want of our souls. We shall find that we can go in and out and enjoy liberty and peace. The day comes when this door will be shut forever and men shall strive to enter in but not be able. Then let us make sure work of our own salvation. Let us not stand tarrying without and halting between two opinions. Let us enter into that door and be saved. Let me pray for us. Oh God, we're amazed of your care for us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us as the good shepherd who lays down his life for us, taking our sin upon himself so that we can receive his righteousness and stand before you with full assurance that we can belong to you because of Christ. Oh God, comfort us and care for us by this good shepherd. And if there are ways we need to repent of our sin and our own sufficiency by running to the shepherd who provides for us, we pray that you would convict us and lead us to that repentance. Well, God, as we go from here, we pray that by your spirit, you would strike our hearts afresh with the joy and the wonder that the Lord Jesus gets to be our shepherd. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.